it's so good to be back with you. Anybody just get back from spring break somewhere? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. You, no, you didn't. You, you went, yeah, okay. I went to spring break at Steak and Shake last weekend. But like, anybody, if you went to spring break and you came to church on Sunday morning at the end of the vacation, there is a special place in the upper echelons of heaven for people like you. So thank you for being here this morning. We hope you connect with God if you have a Bible. Power on and turn to Acts 9. Man, this morning's super simple. It is a foundational message to who we are as a church. We've said this is who we are, that we want to produce disciples who follow Jesus up, in, and out. When you look at our triangle and our logo, that you can remember those foundational things. That we want to do worship services, outposts, and discipleship huddles really well. And that the circle represents we want to be rooted in Christ. Today, there was a sign-up sheet that went around to sign up for the rooted class that begins on Wednesday, the 20th of April, just a week and a half away. You can purchase your book for $15 out at the Connect Center. It's cool. We're getting a lot of people signing up for that. All of the outposts, we're inviting you to go through this in your outposts as well. But this morning's message, we get back to this, this simplistic explanation of who we are as a church. It's where the name Mercy Road comes from in Acts chapter 9, Saul on the road to Damascus. And what we witness in this passage, I want to honestly tell you, we have seen happen in people's lives in this church over the last four and a half years, and even before that when we were in our home, we have seen God radically transform people. And that's really our desire. If you're new here, we believe no one is too far from God to experience life change through Jesus, that the church should be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. That comes from this passage. Some of you are going to be really familiar with this because I've preached on this before. I've even told a couple of these stories before because we as a church are so adamant about this, we have never doubted that God would fulfill his promise in planting this church. As I said last week, it's what kind of church will we become now that God has placed some favor in front of us. Our desire is that we never lose that foundational aspect that we believe no one is too far from God. The mission statement of Mercy Road Church is that we exist to see people far from God, apprenticed or discipled, into a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. The fulcrum for all of that, we say, is discipleship or apprenticeship. And I described that process last week. What I want to focus on this week is that we want to see people who are far from God. Like, do you believe that people, let's put it back up there, people who are far from God could actually experience dramatic change? That we could see them for who they could become rather than who they currently are. That's at the heart of what we're going to look at this morning. Are you ready to study God's word together, church, this morning? Yes. You, you ready to study God's word together, church? And in and, and Acts 9, we are skipping the first eight chapters, so let me catch you up. Here's what happens. Jesus, um, he resurrects from the grave. He, in Acts chapter 1, tells the Christians, you need to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He empowers them with the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to everywhere. 
Gospel just means good news. Then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. So in Acts 2, the two, the disciples get together and they pray together. They share communion together. They worship together. And God begins to add to their number daily. There's the passage where Peter preaches to 3,000 who come to know him and hear him in their native tongue. This miraculous thing occurs in the temple courtyard in Jerusalem. We read last week in Acts chapter 4, one of my favorite passages is, they have now seen God show up and they're thrown into jail for their faith. And so rather than going back and hiding in their houses for the rest of their lives, they go back and they pray for more what? Anybody remember? Boldness. Prayed for more boldness. God utilizes that and they begin to minister to thousands of people, but trouble hits. Some people, they lie about things and Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 get in trouble. By Acts 7, we have the, the stoning of Steve, Stephen has occurred this guy that was really living his faith out as a young man, and this one particular individual named Saul oversees his killing and stoning to death. And so by Acts chapter 9, Saul now is going around from house to house. He's ripping men and women from their homes simply for their belief in Jesus. Some of them are even being killed. That's the environment in which we find ourselves. Could you imagine as a Christian what that would have been like? What is the word we would use to describe someone who is going around and killing people simply for their religious beliefs? We usually, in our culture today, we refer to those people as terrorists, correct? Like in this passage, from our perspective in the Bible at least, that he, in this sense, is literally going around and terrorizing people for their beliefs. What would you have done as a Christian in that environment? And let's be clear, it's not because uh, Saul knew that he was wrong and he was doing it to hurt people. He believed what he was doing was right and just. In Acts chapter 9, we read these verses beginning in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, he's not Paul yet, he's still Saul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, he went straight to the top, baby, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus was north of Jerusalem and what is today Syria, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, uh, women, you'd be thrown into jail as well. You might even die for your faith. By the way here, it, it's called the way because the word Christian was not used until Acts chapter 11 there in the city of Antioch, which becomes home base for the early Christian movement. At that time, they were still a sect of Judaism called the way. They used the term dis disciple for anyone who believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that you were a disciple, a learner, a mathetus of Jesus. So this idea that disciple was just meant for these 11, 12 guys, plus Paul one day, is completely unbiblical that anyone, there are no super Christians, anyone who has faith in Jesus is empowered to live on mission for him. You, if you consider yourself a Christian, are a disciple of Jesus. That's the environment in which you are and you could lose your faith or you could lose your life for it. He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, picture it, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. It's about to get freaky. Verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
or I love the King James Version. It says, why do you kick against the pricks? Taken also used in the song by Johnny Cash, which was really a remake of Trent Reznor's song, The Hurt. You remember? No, I do. Okay. That's, what it's, that's where this is taken from. Why do you kick against the pricks? Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, picture it, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You pray with me. God, I love this passage because it highlights for me and for us here together that you are not done with any of us. God, that no matter how self-righteous we are and we think we have things figured out, that you can draw anyone near to you. You've been doing it since the beginning of time. God, this church is full of people that have brokenness, heartache, There were people who have had a radical transformation in the last few years because you are real. We believe it. We hold on to that hope this morning. We acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit in this room right now. God, we just ask you to speak to us right where we're at. No pretension. Just right to our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Those of you who just got back from spring break a couple years ago, I got to to go to Florida with my family. Anybody uh, go to Florida on spring break? I know we never do that in the Midwest. That's not our favorite destination. Aren't flights like $19 on Allegiant now or something like that? They're going to start paying you to go there. But, you know, uh, we were down there, and it was a beach that I grew up when we would go on vacation. As a kid, we would go to this beach sometime, and I saw something this morning with my son, Jake, he was five years old at the time. Some of you have heard me share this before. And we went to the beach and I saw something I'd never seen. First of all, there was this gigantic shell, like this big, bigger than even my head. And inside of it, there was a living creature. And we were looking at it and this woman comes over and she picks it up and she was a marine biologist and she said, hey, this is a horse conch. I don't know if you knew what those, know what those are, but it was a giant shell with a living animal inside of it. So she takes the shell and she goes way out into the ocean and saves the horse conch's life. See, then my son Jake noticed something. There were all these tiny shells about this size. I later learned they were sea snail shells, but they looked just like that conch. Anybody go hunting for shells ever or recently on spring break? Yeah, you're looking for like that perfect shell, right? Well, here there was like a thousand perfect shells all over the beach. And so my five-year-old is all dead set. We're going to like collect all 1,000 of them, put it in our suitcase and take it back to Indiana because we're going to love the smells when we get home. And I was like, Jake, um, we can't take these because I picked one up for him and I showed him there was a living creature, a sea snail inside of it. And I was like, buddy, we, we can't take it. And I took it and I chucked it into the ocean. You would have thought like I just destroyed everything in this five-year-old's life. He's like, what are you doing? That was perfect. We're never going to find another. Well, there's a thousand, but how? Why did you do that? I said, Jake, if we take this one home, this animal inside is going to die. God created this animal. You're going to kill it. 
if it's not back in the ocean. And then I realized on my supposedly relaxing vacation, I had just told my five-year-old that the thousand sea snails on the coastline were all about to die. And it's a true story. He looks at me and goes, Dad, Dad, they're, gonna, they're all going to die. We got to do something. Got to do. I was like, buddy, that's, God created marine biologists for this. I, I'm here on vacation. I was going to read a book and then not watch you very closely because that's why we come to the beach, right? And, and all of a sudden, it was like 95 degrees out, by the way. It was July in Florida. And he said, we got to sit so... I go, okay, and I take a sea snail and chuck it into the ocean. And for about the next, I don't know, 30, 60 seconds, we are saving lives, man. It's awesome. My son is so excited. And then about one minute later, he turns to me and says, Dad, I'm getting tired. Let's go in and get something to eat now. I was like, dude, you got me. They're going to die now. We got to save them. We literally spent a half an hour of our vacation throwing hundreds of sea snails back into the ocean, saving lives. It felt so good. It felt so good. What is it about, of course, then we let the other 900 die, but what is it about doing something beyond yourself to make a difference that feels so good? I want to share with you this morning I hope you are aware as a Christian that we have a whole lot more to save than just sea snails. See, as a Christian, we believe that Jesus gave his life on the cross. He was crucified, broken for our mistakes, that you could be forgiven, live with God eternally in heaven. We believe that one day he will return and he will put this world right. And that when he resurrected from the grave, it wasn't just so he could sit at the right hand of the Father, but that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, that he is the Christus victor. He overcame death itself so that you can live eternally in heaven, and that this life now, until Jesus returns or until we pass and go to heaven, is about how God could use us to make an impact and a difference. Do you believe that? I remember the first time I was made aware of this, I had recently become a Christian. I knew I was going to heaven when I died, but I was about 20 years old, and somebody shared with me in this community of, that we were doing ministry together. He said, you know, this is the one thing in each of our weeks that we know is a life or death matter. He didn't mean that we were going to die from it. He meant that it mattered for eternity. It was that important. And when you first realize that you and I were created not just to lead a happy life and not just to go to heaven when we die, but to actually use the life you've been given to help those in need and to share your faith, to proclaim the kingdom of God until Jesus returns, it changes everything. It's why in your program, we, we mentioned before coming here in the newsletter that we had a big announcement to share, and it's really a couple of things. One of them you already know about. We believe so adamantly that God wants to transform lives and we've seen it time and time again. Just since we moved in this building, we've had about 100 people give their life to Christ. In a four-week period, just up until last week, we had seen 54 people give their lives to Christ just in four weeks. We believe no one is too far from God, but those are decisions for Christ. Transformation, as we'll talk about, could take a bit of time. 
in your program, you should have a little card that looks like this. This is a church, a completely separate church. This isn't going to be a campus. We may do that someday, but this is a separate church called Hope City Church that we will be launching out into the Carmel-Zinesville area this coming fall. And they have a preview service on April 17th, next Sunday night. I invite you to pray about attending that and seeing if you would like to send out on mission to start a new church. Part of our uh, Multiply Indiana Church Planting Network we're excited for what God is doing, not just in our church, but in all churches, that the gospel is multiplied when it's not just about us expanding and adding to our church, but believing that God can use someone else to multiply his kingdom just as much as he could use us. That said, we do believe that we want to continue to grow as a church. And so we've waited because we're planting a church where we probably should have done it right after Easter, but we are waiting until August 14th. Put this on your calendars now. August 14th. This coming summer, at the end of the summer, pretty much everybody will be back to school. We'll be going to three Sunday morning services because we believe no one is too far from God to experience life change in Jesus, and we want to make even more room for new people. Easter Sunday, we had 1,259 people worshiping with us through th three services. We anticipate by the end of November, we will see numbers somewhat similar to that. We believe that God is still living and active and still moves and works and does things today. Do you believe it? See, this passage for me is so foundational because Saul in this passage is pretty messed up from our perspective at least and even his perspective after he encounters Jesus. And what I want to do with this passage is tell you why we plant churches, why we start uh, new services, why one day we might even prayerfully start another campus, why we would do all of these things. Because if one more person comes to know the truth and grace and mercy of Jesus, it is all worth it. And maybe this morning in the room, you identify with one of the two people that we read about in Acts 9. And I want to ask this question, what would it look like for God to radically transform your life? The first person I want us to look at is maybe this morning you are like Paul, right? He's not Paul yet. He's not the apostle that does all these things, writes the New Testament, starts all these churches. He's Saul. He's messed up from a Christian perspective. I mean, really, he was essentially a terrorist, Going from home to home, ripping people out of their homes, throwing them in jail, not just the men, but the women too. And it's not good to be in jail as a woman. He's overseeing the stoning of Stephen simply for his faith. That is the experience we have. And so maybe you're like Paul. Paul, in this passage, I mean, he's a pretty bad dude. It says in verse 1 that it was breathing out murderous threats against the followers of Jesus. Paul was actually seeking to harm people. He wasn't just dealing with like an issue or like an addiction issue. Like he was actually hurting people, even overseeing the death of people, throwing people into a first century prison. Believe me, you don't want to be there because of their faith. In fact, three times it mentions it here. And once it's even about hurting women, this is what it would have looked like. And yeah, that still happens today in other countries. We see it. It's hard to watch. What would it have been like in this generation to have seen and experienced that? But here's the important part in verses one and two. It alludes to how he is a pretty bad dude. And maybe you're here and you go, man, if I'm honest, uh, coming in here this morning, I got some st stuff I'm not proud of. And you kind of feel like I'm just a bad enough person. God could never really do anything with me. If he could change this guy who ever seen the killing of Christians, this terrorist, I think think he can handle what's going on in your life. 
What happens next here in this passage, I think, is very important for those who have been Christians for a long time. Because in verses 3 to 8, look what it said in verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the pricks in the King James Version? He encounters Jesus here in this passage, and I want to tell you, if you want to see people's lives change radically, to believe that even those far from God, like Saul, could have their lives change, you have to believe it's through encountering the power of Jesus Christ that it occurs. You're like, well, of course I believe that. I'm a Christian. Most of our churches today, if we've been Christians for decades, we usually make like the laundry list of tasks. And if like, you know, we tell people, oh, you know, I know you think you're a Christian, but like you've got this bad thing and you did that and then you did this bad thing and then you did that. You need to change your life. Maybe true. They may need to change their life. But I believe that always happens when they genuinely encounter Christ. Romans chapter 1, it talks about those far from God, but Romans chapter 2 talks about it's the kindness that leads to repentance. And so in your life, how do you kindly point people to Jesus, allow them to genuinely encounter him? Look at verse 5 with me. The truth is Saul doesn't even know who Jesus is at this point. He says in verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Like, maybe you're here and you don't know how to change. You're like, who are you, Lord? I know you've begun to work in my life, but I, I don't even know what to do with this. It's like Eric Maitland trying to order Easter brunch at Harry and Izzy's. This is a true story. He went with his in-laws to lunch at Harry and Izzy's. Now, Eric, our worship leader with the torn pants up here, he, he, he grew up in Jay County, Indiana. There was someone that knows where that is. They have to be from Jay. Okay, Nathan Clatt. They're, they're like two people that have ever heard of Jay County. It's a small community. I grew up in a small community too. And when he was at Harry and Izzy's, he was thinking, I want to save my father-in-law some money. So when they asked him what he wants to eat, he said, oh, just give me the special. Because, you know, in a small community, that means give me what's on sale. They don't have things on sale at Harry and Izzy's. So they brought him the biggest tomahawk steak. I don't know if it, it must have cost like $3,000 or something. They had to take a mortgage out to afford the steak. Like Eric from Jay County ordering Easter brunch at Harry and Izzy, he feels out of his element just a little bit. Some of us, when we hear about the life change through Jesus, like we feel completely out of our element. Like he's like, who, who are you, Lord? I don't even know how to respond to this. Do you ever find that all of us, including ourselves, like when we have unrepentant things in our lives that we haven't asked for forgiveness for, it's not because we know about them and we just don't want to. It's usually because we think we're not doing anything wrong. Like Saul really thought what he was doing was right and just. He was doing it for God, he thought. Man, there are times in my life where I'm not even aware of some of my own failures Maybe you're like that. As he encounters Jesus, he is the one that begins to bring life change. And this freaky situation happens in verses 6 and 7 and 8, where these guys hear the voice of Jesus, but they can't see him. Look, when you begin to encounter Jesus, and you don't even know what to do yet, and he begins to change your life, there are going to be people around you that see it, and they see the change happening, but they don't hear his voice like you do, or they don't see him like you do, rather. And so they're not sure what to do with it. 
When I was 19 and I gave my life to Christ, I was living in a fraternity doing the things on the weekend that people in fraternities do. And I can remember I was at one of those parties and everybody was doing those, you know what we're talking about when I say do what the things they're doing? Yeah. So they're doing those things and they come up to me and said, Josh, why aren't you participating? I said, well, you know, I found Jesus and he's beginning to change my life and I don't know what to do about it. And I just, they didn't get it at all. All they saw was like, you're changing and I don't like it. That happens in your life as you encounter Jesus and he begins to change things. Other people take notice. They may not hear it, they may not see it, but they see the change that happens in your life. Saul is experiencing that. It would have, you would have made no sense to those people who were listening. Look at verses seven and eight with me. It said, the men tra traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He was blind. So he led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And so naturally, when Saul encountered Jesus and he begins to change his life, he gave Saul a promotion at work. He gave Saul the house they had been praying about. He gave Saul the thing that he had really desired. He gave Saul the spouse he had been praying for. He gave Saul the 3.2 children he had always wanted. Right? In the American gospel, that's usually how God works and changes lives. And I'm not telling you as you prayed, God didn't answer your prayer in some way. I believe that he blesses those who serve him, but that blessing is not always financially. And in this passage, rather than giving Saul everything he wants, he makes him blind for three days and doesn't allow him. What did it say in verse 9? It did not allow him to eat or drink for three days. Now, I am not a doctor, but if you don't drink anything for three days, within three to five days, you will die. Jesus initially ruins his life. You see, I believe for us, if you want transformation like Paul, it starts with letting Jesus ruin and wreck your life. Maybe you're here this morning, and for most of us, we desire to have life change to see God work, but we like to invite him into certain areas. See, that's not how the gospel works. It is a complete, utter destruction of who you once were, and he makes you new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the old is gone, the new has come. You are now a new creation in Christ. For some of us, we think of that like breaking something. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to share this with you, you know. Like if, I, if you took a stick and you broke it, it would snap. You could pray all you want and maybe God, you'd say, God, fix this. Put the stick back together. Sometimes in our lives, we are broken, and yes, God is a healer, and he can heal your brokenness, but the life change that comes from the good news of Jesus is not like just fixing a broken heart. See, God doesn't just want to break you and put you back together. In fact, a better analogy of the conversion that we read, the word conversion in the New Testament, the word in Greek is metanoia. It means a complete change, complete change. It's not just putting you back together. It's not just fixing your brokenness. Yeah, he does that. A little better analogy might be that you, like a caterpillar who goes into a cocoon and comes out what? A butterfly, right? But even that doesn't fully fit with the New Testament version of conversion. 
In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, what did I say? It said you will be a new creation. Like you are a new creation. You are born again, the Bible says in John chapter 3. So that means this. It's like you went into the cocoon as a little cute caterpillar. And you came out of the cocoon as a roaring lion. That's the type of dramatic life transformation that occurs. When God gets a hold of your life, there is metanoia, there is complete change. That's what the word conversion means. That means for those of us that are self-righteous and unaware of the bad things in our life, like all of us, you talk to the staff or my wife long enough, I can get grumpy, that's for sure. And I don't believe sometimes that I'm grumpy. I believe it's their problem, right? But then God begins, you encounter Jesus. He points out some of that stuff and he has changed your life enough. If you are a Christian, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come and there's a continual act of repentance that you go back. Maybe you're here and yeah, you're going to heaven when you die. I'm not debating that. But you have never experienced the complete change that you read about in the New Testament Maybe it's in your dating life. You love God, you worship him on Sundays, but your dating life, you're going to date who you want, period. I'm going to live out my dating life the way that I desire. Or maybe it's in your finances, like, right? Like that's a really hard one in our American culture for some reason. Or maybe it's in the area of sex or sexuality, or maybe it is in the area of you and your kids and the way that you want to raise them because that's the way it was always done and that's the way you're going to keep it. Like when you encounter Jesus, he doesn't just like change a little bit. It's a complete reordering, a complete redesigning, a metanoia of who you once were and who you now are. That's the life change that Saul experienced. That's why he would go on to write so much. By the way, in case you're wondering, well, that's great for Saul, but I've given my life to Christ. I haven't seen that type of change. Do you know how long it took Saul before he went on his first missionary journey? From Acts chapter 9 until his first missionary journey, it took 14 years. Galatians chapter 1 says he spent three years in Arabia. He goes to Peter in Jerusalem. Peter is scared of him and all the other disciples are. He goes back up to Syria and he stays there for 11 years before he goes out on mission. We can have salvation. We can live eternally. But that metanoia, that complete change sometimes can take some time. Stop being so hard on yourself. But maybe this morning you've come in here and you're like, I'm not like Saul. I'm never going to go around preaching to a bunch of people I don't know. Maybe you're more like Ananias. And we'll end with this section of scripture. You see, Ananias in verse 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judah on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, or from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about the man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all those on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered in. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. Then look at this cool part. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. See, we all think, man, I'm never going to be like Saul that becomes Paul and reach all these thousands of people with the good news of Jesus. But you know who reached more people for the kingdom of God than Saul? Ananias. See, Ananias 
got to participate in leading all those same people because he led Saul to Christ. So he gets all of Ananias' people plus one. And my question is, for you in your life right now, who is your plus one? And let's be honest, life change can be messy. When we reach those far from God, it can be messy, and it doesn't fit in our neat Sunday boxes the way we would like it to. And sometimes we have to hold to our truth, and sometimes we have to show more grace, and we have to be constantly calibrating those two together. And sometimes the process can take a month of life change, and sometimes it can take a year, and sometimes it takes 14 years or more. But it takes us being willing, like Ananias here, to actually listen and obey. Ananias knew what he needed to do, but he didn't want to do it, just like most of us. You say, I haven't given a great uh, call from God like Saul had on the road to Damascus, but the Bible says very clearly, if you consider yourself a Christian, you are to help those in need to share your faith. That it says in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That doesn't just for people up on a stage, that was for every person who ever followed Jesus. You were on a twofold mission to make an impact. God's not done with you. He created you for a purpose. There may be some sleeping giants of the faith like Saul who becomes Paul here this morning, that you're a bad person if you're real honest. You got a whole lot of junk in the trunk. But this morning, God is going to change that and he's going to change Change it radically in your life. And you're going to begin to see him use you and bring a complete metanoia change. Or maybe you are like Ananias this morning, that you know Jesus and you're afraid to follow him when he asks. The second point about Ananias, Ananias listens and obeys and he changes the world. Who this morning is your plus one? The oikos is the Greek word for household, the eight to 15 in your sphere of influence. Who could God use you to impact? And here's how we're going to close out. In your program this morning, you should have got a little connect card. It looks like this. I'm real serious about this. I want to invite you to fill this sucker out. And if you are new here, and for those that God has been speaking to for a while, and you don't know how to follow him, you don't even really fully know who he is yet, but you want to begin to experience life with him, I want to give you the opportunity this morning to pray and receive the grace and mercy of Jesus. But for those of you that would consider yourselves a Christian, I want to give you this card and for you to write this three names on the back of this card. Don't turn it in. This is for you. Put it on your dresser at home or wherever you want. Put it in your Bible if you're still old school and carry one. But I want you to write three names on the back of it in your sphere of influence that might just maybe be your plus one. Will you pray with me? God, as we just reflect on Acts 9, maybe there are some people in our lives right now that could be our plus one but we're looking at it with human eyes rather than your eyes. We're looking at them for who they are now rather than who they could become. God, I pray right now for those of us who consider ourselves Christians, if there is someone in particular you need to lay on our mind right now, that we would begin to pray for them deliberately. God, not for our own sake, but because we just want to love them the way that you do. God, may you ruin and wreck our lives so much that we would actually see the transformation we so uh, adamantly desire. So take just 30 seconds right now. Think and pray. God, speak to us. Just three people in our lives that we could write down on this card and pray for them.
God, as we seek out your hand and vision and favor in this area of our lives, I know this morning I had three people in mind and you gave me two more important people right now. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, for each of those two people. I pray that they encounter you, that they receive you, that they be willing not just to be broken, but have their life completely reoriented around you, that you're their identity first and foremost. God, we do that not out of self-righteousness, God, but because you ask us to. God, we pray for our plus ones right now. Use us, Lord Jesus. God, and then there are some who in the room right now can really identify with Saul, with the badness, the way people have not responded well to you, the way you've been hurt. You even know you've got some messed up things in your past, but God loves you just as you are. And as he encounters Jesus, or Jesus encounters him on that road to Damascus, he didn't just dwell on his badness. He began to bring real life change. And so maybe that's you this morning, a sleeping giant of the faith that just wants to be awakened to the reality, not just of God, but Jesus' mercy for you and to begin to be changed by him. If you desire that, I want you to pray this silently as I pray it out loud. God, I confess I am not perfect. Forgive me for my wrongdoing. I believe in your life, death, and resurrection that I can live eternally with you and experience you now in my life. And so lead me on mission, God, like a young kid picking up shells and throwing them back in the ocean. Use my life for a greater purpose than myself, God. May you use me to impact other people in this world before I die or before you return, Jesus. I love you and I commit everything in my life to you, Lord Jesus. God, we love you, we praise you, we pray you honor these commitments this morning and the names we write on this card, we give them all to you. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's family together said, amen. Amen.